Thank you, brother. Yeah, I just I had to, I had to mention um, as I got up here that solo we got a little Spanish in there this morning. It's the Latin sola we we get that just a little mistype there. Sola scriptura. Nobody else that, but I couldn't let it go. Um, good morning. I'm Taylor. I'm a pastor here at Sojourn, and it's so good to see all of you out there. Welcome. Um, okay, here we go. So yeah, as Austin said. Uh, what are we laughing at? Oh, they did? <laughs> yes. It's like, that's something on my nose. What? What's up? Well done. See? See that crew? Um, as Austin said, so this Tuesday, October 31st, Halloween, is the, uh, it's traditionally, it's, so it's the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation of sort of traditionally what is ascribed to Luther, Martin Luther, um, the monk, nailing 95 theses sort of protests or, or things that he saw needed to be addressed, wrote them in Latin, so it was supposed to be a scholarly debate, but they got translated in the printing press that existed for a little over 50 years at that point, and so it got, they just, it was, as somebody said earlier, it, it was sort of the first message to go viral, literally across the continent of Europe. Um, and so we have, if we're going to ascribe a beginning date, even though there was much that God had been doing really for centuries, and I've I can't talk, it pains my soul that I can't give you a fuller context for this, and I had to cut out a couple pages of notes on this, but the fact is we're not talking about the Reformation this morning so much as the five solas or planks that we, that we hold to partly as an inheritance of the Reformation. The first uh, today is scriptura, sola scriptura, not solo scriptura, but sola. And so I really want to dive into, I want to give you a little context regarding Martin Luther, but I really want to dive into actually Scripture. Why do we hold to the fact that Scripture alone is our final authority, okay? And if you want more context, man, there are, if there have ever been biographies on Luther, there are right now. I mean, they're just, the publishers are releasing them in the honor of the 500th anniversary, like wildfire. Uh, pastors teaching and preaching on this for the next weeks. Um, so so get after it, get some more, and I'd, lo- I'd love to recommend books. Here I Stand by uh, Roland Bainton is a classic uh, Eric Metaxas, who wrote that um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer biography, has just come out with one that's been released on Martin Luther that's so far so good. I'm about a third of the way through. It's a big one. Um, so Halloween is Reformation Day every year, right? This just happens to be the 500, the kinsman of that day. So um, next time somebody says, Happy Halloween, just respond by saying, Happy Reformation Day. And they'll just get this strange look on their face like, what are you talking about? Um, maybe not great party talk, but it's true. And then the following day, November 1st, is All Saints Day. Um, so just little fun facts. Um, the five solas, they summarize the Reformation's basic principles. Um, sola Deo Gloria, Sola Scriptura, thirdly, Sola Gratia, fourthly, Sola Fide, and fifthly, Sola Christus. Or in other words, let me translate, we live for God's glory. The Bible is our, not our only authority, but it's our highest authority and the only infallible rule of faith and practice, okay? We are saved by grace through faith, fourthly and fifthly. Jesus is our only and sufficient way to God. So we're gonna be unpacking those over the next five weeks together. Um, Typically, I like, you know, if this is your first time here, let me just say this. Typically, my preference, really because I'm an inheritor of the Reformation, um, and it's Reformation, not revolution. Let's be aware of that. It's, they wanted not to create a new church, but to reform the only apostolic and true church, to, ha- to, to see it purified and to return to what it was meant to be based on the word of God and on what Christ had done. And so it wasn't to be a revolution. In a sense, it kind of ended up being that and splitting the church, which is a shame. Um, but um, we, we affirm these. Oh, so what I was saying is I typically like to just preach through books, which I think, yeah, we just preach through Galatians. And that is maybe even more of a tribute to the inheritance of the Reformation than anything. That's what, uh, you know, sola scriptura, scripture alone is our solid foundation for living and for faith. And so, um, but right now it's gonna be kind of more topical. So it's gonna be a bit more didactic. I'm trying to move from teaching to preaching, but there's always gonna be some teaching in my preaching. There's a little more teaching today. So if, if you're a note taker, today's the day. There's a lot of information and I hope, it, I hope it's helpful to you. Um, as of 2017, the church being the body of Christ, is, it is divided. I mean, we're this side of heaven. Christ called for unity. 
we're his body, but on this earth we're divided. And the Reformation unintentionally uh, led to some of that. Um, it won't always be the case. And the gospel demands unity. Um, and our goal in teaching this series is not to divide or to celebrate division, but unity through clarity. Um, and so we don't really want to say what we're against as much as what we're for and what, what the gospel inheritance that we have. Um, Drew's, Drew, who's teaching, I think he's preaching on this at, at Heights. He's a pastor at Heights. He said the Reformation was a good thing, but also regrettable. It would have been much better had the Reformation never been a necessity. Schism wasn't the goal. The goal, again, was not revolution, but reformation. Um, and again, Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door, not sort of an, to be an explosive schismatic thing, but in Latin to be a debate among pastors, amongst scholars, um, but it, went, it just went ballistic because there were such abuses in the Roman Catholic Church and, um, and so in the printing press and, and on and on. There's, there's a lot there. Um, so let's dive into Sola Scriptura. Okay, let me just make one disclaimer before we do. If by the end I failed to make nervous both those who fear calling the Bible, the entire Bible from cover to cover from Genesis to Revelation, the very word of God, if I failed to make those nervous who uh, fear calling the entire Bible, the very word of God, and if I failed to make nervous those who, quote, search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, that's from John 5, um, then I've failed, okay? Um, the Bible, cover to cover, is the very word of God, um, inerrant, infallible, and, and uh, for a, a, the infallible rule for faith and practice, and also it's not the point. The point is through the scriptures to know the living God, whose name is Jesus Christ. So, if we're looking for eternal life in the scriptures themselves as an endpoint, Jesus says, guys, it's, the scriptures exist to get you to me, and they are my very word. And by faith through my Holy Spirit, we can have a relationship. So I want to make both of you, both parties nervous. And if I haven't done some of that and rattled some cages, then I haven't, I haven't failed. But the word of God won't fail. It will always go forth and will never return void. It will always accomplish its purpose. So a little um, context again. We are on Tuesday celebrating the 500-year anniversary. Um, of the Reformation. Martin Luther, for five years, he had had his doctorate by 1511, 1512, and he'd been lecturing on scripture only. It wasn't typical for a doctor of the church to lecture on, on scripture, or certainly just on scripture, but Luther loved the Bible, and it actually presented a lot of problems to him because he had not discovered the gospel of grace, really, for himself yet until well, until during the course of his lectures from 1512 to 1517, he lectured on Psalms, Galatians, Romans, Hebrews, and that exposure to the scripture really was the thing that helped lead to this explosion. It was the Bible itself that gave rise to this, which is one reason we're starting with Sola Scriptura. The scripture is our foundation for all these other planks that we get, for all these other things that we know. Um, and like I said, I mean, God had been using others. Um, John Wycliffe, the Morning Star of the Reformation, John Huss, a uh, Czech who was burned at the stake, in the 15th century, um, and even within the Roman Catholic Church, there was a ref, sort of reformation, uh, there was unrest um, at, the, at, how, at the abuses in the Catholic Church and the straying away from Scripture and looking to tradition and what the Pope said and the papal bulls instead of Scripture. Um, but Luther was just the right man at the right time. He was the, the spark that, that, that lit up the powder keg and caused an explosion. Um, he said something like, I raised my hand, and in my hand I found a rope. And I pulled that rope, and attached to that rope, there was a bell that rang throughout all of Europe. And that's, that's really what, got, he was just the right man at the right time. Um, by, by no means perfect, by no means, had big time feet of clay, but God used him. And in the Diet of Worms, which was not in 1517, but four years later, that was really where we see the doctrine of Sola Scriptura being put on by Luther. Um, and that was where he was called to this diet, this, this council in front of, all the Western world and all its authorities in the Roman Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Emperor and everyone saying, recant, take your position back. The Pope can't err. Um, you know, you're wrong. We're right. He said, look, unless I am convinced by Scripture and by clear reason and by conscience, I cannot and I will not recant. To do so would be neither safe nor right. So help, here I stand, so help me God. And that's where that famous phrase, here I stand, um, comes from. Um, and Martha, Martin Luther didn't stand alone. Christ was with him because he was standing on the word of God. Therefore, he was in the majority. He was in the majority. Um, 
as Christ stood with him. So let's jump into Sola Scriptura. What does it mean? And then, and then we'll, we'll keep going. What does it mean? The Belgic Confession puts it this way. Uh, we believe that the Holy Scriptures fully contain the will of God and that whatsoever man ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. Neither may we consider any writings of men, however holy these men may have been, of equal value with those divine scriptures. Nor ought we to consider custom or the great multitude or antiquity or succession of times and persons or councils, decrees, or statutes. Again, as of equal value with the truth of God. Therefore, we reject with all our hearts whatsoever does not agree with this infallible rule. That's the Belgic Confession. Um, this doesn't mean the Bible, again, is our only authority. Not what we're saying. It means that all other authorities we see as subject to the Bible. And I'm going to explain why we believe that throughout the course of this sermon. Don't worry. I'm going to try. Okay? Um, the Bible actually affirms the validity of other authorities and quotes things with authority that are not in the scriptures, that are not other books of the Bible. Um, it's sojourn. We love, we love creeds. We love confessions. We want to roll those increasingly into our worship. Okay? And we take the teaching of this church very seriously. The Bible is to be read and understood within a community of faith. So we're saying that. But no creed, council, or individual may ultimately bind a Christian's conscience. In addition, let me pivot. In addition, the Holy Spirit never speaks contrary to the written word of God, to the scriptures. So personal spiritual experience is always also subject to the Bible. Okay? Martin Luther and the reformers, historically, a little bit of context there, on one side they faced the Roman church, which claimed that tradition uh, could be final and absolute uh, form of infallible revelation. So in a very real sense, the reformers, um, uh, excuse me, in a very real sense, the Pope and Roman traditions carried as much weight as scripture, which really, if you think about it practically, how does that work? It really works as, if you say they're on parity, they're equal, the way that really works is that the church says what the word of God means. The church has the upper hand, okay? The church is really the final authority. And, and, and the Reformation came along and said, that's not what scripture says at all. That's not safe nor right. We, can't, we have to go back to the way that it was to reform. Um, and on the other side, though, the reformers faced, so that was one side, the Roman church holding up tradition above scripture, really. Um, on the other side, they faced the Anabaptists who claimed that tradition um, carried no authority whatsoever and in some cases subverted the Bible as their leaders would claim special divine revelation. So that also is an abuse that the reformers were railing against and saying it's scripture alone, it's sola scriptura that we live and die by. Um, and so these issues exist in the church, obviously extremely clearly today. And so this is, um, you know, some people, some Christians give little thought to what the Bible says and they just trust their leaders blindly. We don't want, I would never want you to do that with me or any of our pastors. Um, you take what I say back to the word. Okay, that's the final authority. Uh, my goal is to unpack the very word of God because the word of God, the unfolding of God's word, Psalm 119, gives what? Gives light. The unfolding, like the unfolding of a flag to wave it. You see what its colors are. That's my job, is to unpack the word for you and to feed you with God's holy word, which is finer, which is finer than the finest wheat and sweeter than the sweetest honeycomb and worth more than thousands of gold and silver pieces. And if you get that, and if you feed on that, church, you will be well. Um, through the power of the Holy Spirit by faith, okay? Um, others prefer direct communication with the Holy Spirit, even when their experience contradicts the Bible. Um, others find modern secular authorities to be more convincing than God's revelation. So that's our situation today. So this is super relevant for us. Um, okay, let me just, I'm gonna pivot for a few minutes, so bear with me. Okay, take a deep breath. Get your pen out and your notes if you take them. Um, I'm going to pivot for a few minutes and just talk about epistemology. Okay, we're going to get to Scripture. We're going to camp out in some verses that are awesome. Okay, but I, before I jump to Scripture and say, Scripture says itself it is the final authority, you could just go, okay, fine, but how do I know? That seems circular. Let me talk a little bit about epistemology, which is the, the study of knowing and how we know what we know. You ever thought about that? Like, I know, but how, do, how does that work? So it's this, epistemology is a study of knowledge and how we know, how we can know things at all. Let me talk a little bit about how two things. One, an ultimate assumed authority is necessary for thought. Okay, let me, if you're taking notes, let me say that again. I want to talk briefly about how an ultimate assumed authority is necessary just for thinking. Okay, everyone has an ultimate assumption or presupposition, to use a bigger word, to ground their thinking. For instance, 
we all assume there is such a thing as meaning when we speak and argue. Have you ever debated whether there is such a thing as meaning? Maybe in a college class, maybe in a round table where you're smoking and drinking and, and solving the world's problems, okay? But typically, you don't, you don't stop and pause before you make an argument and go, okay, Hank, let's all make sure we agree there's meaning. That thing, meaning exists. You have to just assume meaning exists to talk in a coherent way and to have people listen to you and to make arguments. You have to assume that. You don't prove it. Um, John Frame develops this line of argument. He says this. He says, every philosophy must use its own standards in proving its conclusions. Otherwise, it would simply be inconsistent. Those who believe human reason is the ultimate authority, they're called rationalists, okay, must presuppose the authority of reason in their arguments for rationalism. So you can't argue that, you can't argue that, that the human rationale is the highest authority unless you're assuming that uh, human rationale is an authority, okay, full stop. You just assume that in order to prove that. Um, those who believe in the ultimacy of sense experience must presuppose it for arguing their philosophy, which is called empiricism, okay? Um, and as he says, if that is circularity, then everybody is guilty of circularity. So to prove things from experiments that sense experience really is what we have and, and what we know and that's it, you assume that our senses are real and that they tell us real and valid things. You just assume that, okay? You have to in order to, to be an empiricist, okay? Um, so Cartesian rationalism, Cartesian means Descartes, the philosopher, the 16th century French, or was he 17th? Sorry, I didn't do my homework there. Uh, French philosopher, he said that famous phrase, what, cogito ergo sum, we all know some Latin, I think, therefore I am. And he's assuming there that, that his rationale is valid and cogent. Um, and I'm not saying in rationalism, I'm not, I'm not saying let's be irrational. That's different than rationality. We all have rationality and rationality and being reasonable is good and right and godly. But to say that the human rationale is the highest, it's the highest authority full stop. That's rationalism, okay? Um, and so Descartes is saying, I know and I think, therefore all other things come out of that and have meaning. He's setting up the human rationale as the highest value. And in, a, in the end, when we look at the scriptures, we either, let me just simplify it, maybe simplistically, but I think this is true for the sake of argument and clarity. We either in the end say, God's word is the highest, okay? And I receive that as the ultimate authority and I conform my life to what he says. Or we say, my word is the highest and it's something that in my understanding is the highest, in my mind, in my capacity. And therefore, if I see something in scripture not that it doesn't make sense and I have questions and there are problems and then I search. No, I'm not saying avoiding that, but I'm saying if, I, if my rationale is a final arbiter and I, when I see something that I disagree with or don't understand, I say, that can't be right. That, then all of a sudden, I've put my own rationale over the rationale, the word, the dictate of God. It's, it's one or the other in the end. We have to choose. And I wanna hopefully in this sermon unpack a little bit more about why it, it is best to say, God's word is the ultimate authority in our lives over everything, and that's what gives us security and understanding. Um, so in empiricism, I'm gonna quote from a guy named Michael Kruger, um, same thing as rationalism. To set up a scenario to verify the accuracy of sense perception, so think about setting up an experiment, a science experiment, okay? You're gonna, you're gonna sense certain things and then write them down and observe and then, and then come to certain conclusions, okay? Um, in order to set up the accuracy, to verify the accuracy of sense perception, I must trust my sense perception in setting up the eyesight test. The regress is infinite, okay? So I have to have some assumed non-provable trust in my setting up the test in order to run the test, in order to get conclusions from the test to make certain conclusions, okay? Um, otherwise, we just end up saying, maybe just, we're just all brains in a vat, which, you know, that's been the movie Matrix. You know, that might, that might cue for you the movie Matrix. David Hume, the philosopher, talks about that some. Um, okay, so Jean-Paul Sartre, a French existentialist in the middle of the 20th century, he said, he said this. He said, no finite point has meaning. No finite point has meaning, or no set of finite points have meaning without what? An infinite reference point. A fixed and infinite reference point. Otherwise, all these points that are the sort of things that mean things to us throughout our lives, if there's nothing fixed and ultimate, there's, no, there's nothing by which those other things have their bearing. They don't have a place. They're just all 
random and relative, okay? So even John Paul Sartre, who was a, he was an atheist, said there has to be an ultimate assumed fixed point. He didn't believe in one, <laughs> and so what? What's the corollary? What's the conclusion? In his life, he said, I don't believe there is one. I don't believe in a God. Therefore, really, logically, to be logically consistent, which he couldn't even be because his words really would have no meaning if he didn't believe in an ultimate fixed point, but <laughs> he knew that it didn't make sense, and so he just said, look, I know there's no meaning. I'm even using words to say there's no meaning, which is actually self-contradictory. Okay, I'm assuming meaning to say there's no meaning. So he didn't believe in a fixed point. So really, according to his own philosophy and understanding, nothing really had any, any fixed position or meaning. It was all just free-floating. But let's just, let's just put a brave face on it and stare into the meaningless void together. Okay, so that was, that was his despairing philosophy. Okay, but that was Sartre himself who, who admitted that. If all there is is material, if we're just stardust and that's it, and we're, if we're just a concatenation of random particles bouncing around, then there's no ground for meaning in anything I say or you say. There's no, there's no reason to make any argument. Everything's just a random energy, okay? So we have to assume a fixed point of ultimate meaning that, that we can't ultimately argue past, even just to talk. You see? Okay. So, so we, the assumed authority is absolutely necessary for thought. Also, ultimate authority is by definition, sort of to piggyback on that point, it's by definition self-referential. So let me just take a simple example. You have a meter, as opposed to a yard, the European meter, right, where the whole rest of the world's on the meter and we, for some reason, chose the yard, <laughs> you know, yay America. Um, you have the meter, and, and you know what they had, what the standard was for a meter? Like, what, who, says, who says a meter's a meter? Well, they had a standard bar of iron in the Maitre des Archives, sorry, uh, Laurence, I know that's a terrible, um, but it, in, the, in the meter of the archives, uh, in the archives there was a meter, a standard iron, and everything was measured against that. You want to know how, if this is off a little bit here or there, you take it to the standard iron meter in the archives in Paris, and that's how you know. And how do you appeal from that standard meter that that's a meter? Well, you just, you can't appeal beyond that. That is the meter. That's it. So at some point, at some point, um, there's a stop, okay? And that meter has to refer to itself, okay? It just is, that is the length of a meter, okay? Um, there's no higher authority to appeal to. You know, Scripture works that way. It talks about itself that way. Um, God talks about himself that way. And we're gonna talk in a bit about how God and Scripture often conflate to where God is God's word, God's word is God. Okay, we'll talk about that. Hebrews 6.13 so taking notes, you can start now, even if you didn't, if that, all that epistemology stuff was just like, what is he talking about? You know, let's get into some scripture. Hebrews 6.13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he what? He swore by himself. Can you imagine God swearing for veracity? I put my, so I do, what do I do when I go into a courtroom? I put my hand on the Bible, it's a high authority. I swear that I'm gonna tell the truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. Gives meaning to my words. What is God going to swear by? <laughs> he has to, if, he's, if he is God, if God exists, he has to swear by himself. There's nothing higher. Space? No, I mean, it, it doesn't, it's not going to work. So he swore by himself because there's no one higher, okay? Michael Kruger again, if you try to validate an ultimate authority by appealing to another authority, you've just proven that that's not an ultimate authority. Okay, so an ultimate authority can't, can't validate itself by appealing to any other authority. Just like that meter in the Maitre des Archives in Paris. On the contrary, says Greg Bonson, another former epistemologist, actually, the fact that the apologist presupposes the word uh, God in order to carry on a discussion, the word of God, I believe, the fact that the apologist presupposes the word of God in order to carry on a discussion or debate about the veracity of that word does not nullify his argument, but rather illustrates it. You see, you have to presuppose an ultimate authority. And we say that the scriptures actually say that they are ultimate. And that makes sense if God is indeed God. There is no one higher, okay? And scripture and God are equated, and I'll get to that. There's a certain circularity to the appeal, again, of foundational or ultimate authority. Um, so a parent says to a kid, when he says, well, but why, but why, but why? At some point, the 17th time, maybe the first if you've gotten smart, you know, I used to think it was because parents were lazy, you know, they epistemologically. No, you say what? Because I told you so. Why are you doing that? It's not just because you're being lazy. It's probably not because you're being lazy as a parent at all, epistemologically. Um, 
It's because it's, it should be enough that I said it. For all intents and purposes, I am your final authority, kid. For now, I am as God to you, as it were, okay? Right? You're the first picture of parent, news, newsflash. You're the fix, first picture of uh, God that uh, your child will see, okay? And that's why it's so important. This is off script. That's why it's so important in the scriptures, honor your father and mother. If you don't, you will not honor God. And if you honor your father and mother, you will likely end up, it'll be, there'll be, it's an entree into honoring and respecting um, God. And so because I said so is actually epistemologically quite, quite sophisticated um, because it's, you can hang on to that parents. Um, it, it should be enough that I've said it. And if you, I know you can't understand all these other arguments, but I know, and I'm telling you, it'll be well with you. It will be well with you if you obey me. John Calvin said, God alone is a fit witness of himself and his word. Scripture is indeed self-authenticated. And Herman Bavinck expands on that. He's a 19th century Dutch theologian. In the church fathers and the scholastics, scripture rested in itself. We're getting, after this, guys, it's all scripture, okay? Um, scripture rested in itself, was trustworthy in and of itself, autopistos is the Greek, and the primary norm for church and theology. And Mike Kruger expands on that. Therefore, Bavinck argues an ultimate authority like scripture must be believed on its own account, not on account of something else. He says elsewhere that scripture's authority with respect to itself depends on scripture. So scripture is self-validating and self-referential, and the best way to read scripture is to interpret it and to read it in light of itself. And that makes sense if indeed it is an ultimate authority. That's all I want you to understand. We're not being consistent when we say scripture is the full stop. There are, there's tons of knowledge outside of scripture, but if it contradicts it, if indeed scripture is God's word and if God is God, it makes sense epistemologically. In fact, nothing else does if we have meaning at all that God's word is full stop and is, and is our source for authority and understanding in all of life, okay? So that's, that's all I'm trying to say. Now let's take a little bit of time to dive into some scripture, okay? The Bible says, rather than assume, it rather assumes, excuse me, that God and his word is the ultimate authority, like I've been saying. So how do we know this? Okay, just, let's just go to the first verse of the Bible. Genesis 1.1, 1, 1. a lot of you know it. In the beginning, what's the next word in English? God, okay? Bereshit bara Elohim, okay, in the Hebrew. In the beginning, God. It doesn't go on to give a proof or a five-fold proof of the fact that God exists, does it? It just, from the get-go, the word of God starts with assuming God. And epistemologically, again, that's extremely, it seems like, wait, wait a minute, it's very sophisticated, God, if he is, he has to be assumed as the ground for all being and understanding, if he exists, okay? Um, Exodus 3.14, the next book in the Bible is Exodus after Genesis. When God reveals himself on Mount Sinai in the desert to Moses at Horeb, it's another name for Mount Sinai, in Exodus 3.14, and Moses says, you're commissioning me to go back and deliver the slaves with your help out of Egypt, can't do it. What if I go there and, and I tell them who sent me? Who, who should I say sent me? And God gives his covenant name to Moses, doesn't he? And what does he say? He says, you tell them that I am sent you. My name is I am. My name is I am, what? That I am. I am, I can't appeal to anything else. I am the ground of existence. And I do exist because I do exist. I can't appeal to anything else because I am God. And you go tell Pharaoh that, that's the way God reveals himself from Genesis 1 all throughout the rest of the Bible. And the, the lodestar of his word is hitched to his being. There is no separation. God's word is God. And we find that out very clearly in John 1, don't we? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word what? Was God. Very sophisticated epistemologically, okay? God's word um, is equated, again, to God and his being. So scripture says, when we read of it, this in the New Testament, when, it, when, the, when the New Testament author is quoting scripture, it's often actually God saying it. So let me, let me give you an example. Romans 9, 17, if you're taking notes, again. The scripture says to Pharaoh, this, this is literally a quote from Romans 9, 17. Paul says this, he says, the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you. The scripture says? Who said that in Exodus? 
I have raised you up for this, my very purpose of, of showing my power in you. He says this to Pharaoh. Does the scripture say that to Pharaoh? God says this to Pharaoh in the account of Exodus. And how does Paul, how does Paul tell us? He says the scripture says. So here, here he's equating the scripture to God himself. When the scripture's speaking, it's God speaking, okay? The opposite is also true. God says is sometimes, um, means, it also means scripture says. So Matthew 19, four through five, Matthew 19, four through five, quote, I'm quoting here, he who made them, Matthew quotes from Genesis here, he who made them said, this is Genesis chapter two, he who made them said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. Jesus here in Matthew is quoting from Genesis two and um, he's quoting from, he's, he's attributing that to God. He says, he who made them, in other words, God, he who made man and woman, Adam and Eve, said, um, for this reason, you shall leave father and mother. So Jesus attributes that to God. God said this, but who actually, who said this? Who wrote the book of Genesis? Moses. Moses wrote the book of Genesis. And so what he's saying is Moses is saying it it's the same thing as God saying it. God is saying it through Moses, the word of God. So here is Jesus' understanding of scripture. The word of God, fully God, fully man. Fully through Moses, the human author, fully God's word, 100%. Fully God, fully man. Does that remind you of anything? The scriptures point us to our savior, fully God and fully man. And there's a mysterious way in which the word the little W word itself takes us to the living word, capital W, through the power of the Holy Spirit, okay? Equal authority. Hebrews chapter four, this is one of my favorites. You've probably read this a lot, but I wonder if you've ever seen this. Hebrews chapter four, verses 12 and 13. We have, it, it's a fridge magnet verse. For the word of God is living and active, right? Sharper than any two-edged sword. It's talking about the word, the scriptures. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, you see how the words, the adjectives living and active are attributed? Um, piercing, it's doing things to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and what? Discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's doing what people do, but check this out, verse 13, seamless transition. Watch this, he's been talking about scripture, verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You see how the author of Hebrews did that? He's talking about scripture and all are exposed to his gaze. It's the same thing. There's this, there's this seamless transition from scripture to him, to God himself. That's because the scripture is the very word of God and the word of God is God, John 1.1. 1, 1. Wow, such a high understanding of what scripture is. Okay, so let me, let me pivot again. The scriptures are thus our ultimate authority according to themselves. They are self-referential and self-attesting. So what do the scriptures say about themselves? I've already talked about that a bit. What does the word, what does Jesus say about the word, the scripture? Look at the Old Testament briefly. So Jesus's view is this, that the scriptures are true to the very pen stroke, to the slightest pen stroke. And, when, and let me just say this, when Jesus says scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. Every time you read scriptures in the New Testament, that word scriptures is referring back to the Old Testament because the New Testament had not yet been written until Jesus ascended. And then within that next generation, the New Testament was penned, okay? Um, he looked at the Old Testament as true to every single, the smallest letter in the Hebrew is a yod and it's the, it's the exact size of an apostrophe. And the little dongle dingle thing on the end of an A, like a, you know, um, an English, the letter A, that little at the end if you do a lowercase, that is what he said, that little bit and the smallest little apostrophe sized letter, all of that in the scriptures will be fulfilled, is what Jesus says. So it's gonna be fulfilled, they're true to the very pin stroke, they're true to the very verb tense. When he gets in an argument with the Sadducees, uh, the Sadducees come to him and they present this puzzle to him thinking that they've got him, they always think they've got him, don't they? Then they leave with their tail between their legs like, we're never doing that again, you know? And they come up and they don't, the Sadducees, as opposed to the Pharisees, do not believe in the resurrection. And so they come up with an argument as to why the resurrection can't be true. And what is Jesus's argument? Is it a philosophical proof? No, he always goes back to scripture and says, you need to read this. Have you not read this before? And the, the Sadducees had, and the Pharisees had lots of scripture memorized. And so to say like, hmm, have you never read this before? Like that was such a slap 
commandment, but he always goes back to the authority of the word. And what does he say? He says, have you never read that passage, he says, about the bush and Moses, where God comes to Moses? That's the one I just quoted from in Exodus 3. And he says, um, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And what does Jesus do? He says, he builds his entire argument on that verb tense. He says, God said that I am the God of these three dudes who have died. I am, not I was. His whole argument rests on the fact that he he says, the scripture doesn't say I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they're dead now. I am. And so when God says I am the God of someone who died, that means they're still alive. Ergo, there is a resurrection. Ergo, they're with God now, waiting for the resurrection of the body, okay? God, Jesus hinges his entire argument on the fact that, that the scriptures in Exodus 3 say, I am the God. That's a verb tense. And he says, man, have you never read this? You don't take it seriously, I guess. A verb tense. And actually, let me just drill down a little more. To the very pen stroke, to the very verb tense, to the very implied verb. Do you know, if you go back to the Hebrew, that verb is implied. It's not even in the Hebrew. It's not even in the text. Because a being verb, haya, is the being verb. I sound like a karate chop, didn't it? Haya! You're like, what is he doing? Haya. That being verb is implied. It's implied in the Hebrew. That's just typical Hebrew grammar. So I am the God, literally the Hebrew just says, I, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus is hinging his entire argument on the resurrection, and he could have used a ton of other texts just by going back to this implied Hebrew verb. I guess you don't take Hebrew grammar seriously. I mean, seriously, he just bushwhacks them with this intense view of the very jot and tittle of the scripture being authoritative. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus says in Matthew 5, but my word will never. You know what he says there? My word. What's he claiming to be? God. The very word of God. It will never pass away until what? All of it is fulfilled. Okay? On on that note, um, he says, the scriptures cannot not be true. Jesus answered them, "Is is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom, the, whom, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, okay, and he goes on to talk some more. He says, scripture can't be broken, this has to be true, therefore your argument's wrong, to my point, okay? And then again, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a, a yod, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished, Matthew 5. The other, the other bit was from Matthew 10. Um, sort of on that, scriptures are not just true, Get this, hang with me, but determinative, okay? They shape history. History does what scripture says it will do. Scripture determines space and time. That's Jesus's view. Matthew, let me just read you a litany quickly of scriptures. Matthew 26, 24, if you're taking notes. The son of man goes, Jesus says this, the son of man, that was his favorite name for himself. The son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Listen to that key phrase in all these that I read. The Son of Man goes what? As it is written of him. What is Jesus' argument for why Jesus is going to the cross? It's written in the Old Testament. I have to go. It's determinative. Luke 22, 37. For I tell you that the scripture, what? Must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. That he's quoting from the Old Testament. It has to be because the scripture will not return void. It determines space and time. Matthew 26, 31, then Jesus said to them, you will fall, he's talking to the disciples, you will all fall away because of me this night. Why? For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. It has to happen this way because that's from Zechariah and it's just gonna happen. Matthew 26, 53 and following, do you not think that I can appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? that it must be so. Again, same old argument. It has to be this way because the scriptures have to be fulfilled. The scriptures weren't just true for Jesus. They determined the course of his life. Every decision he made was according to the scriptures. Even on the cross, what was he crying out? Scriptures. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Straight from the scriptures, okay? Um, He was just filled with them, soaked in them. They determined his course. In Luke 24, finally, 
verses 25 and through 27, and he said to them, and this is after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus. He's talking to disciples that don't recognize him. And they're like, man, why did he have to die? We don't know if he's risen. And he's like, it's in the Old Testament. That's his argument. He says this, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary, get that word? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And what? Beginning with Moses, the beginning of the Bible, and all the prophets taken to the whole Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, it had to happen this way because the scriptures point to me and the fact that I am coming to live the life that you should have lived but, but can't live, haven't lived, and to die the death that you deserve to die because God is just. And so to be with God, sin has to be taken care of. And the scriptures foretell that I would come. They point to me. They're about me. I'm their fulfillment. And so it had to happen. Um, Jesus fulfilled the scriptures. And so the truth of Jesus and of your salvation, if indeed you have trusted in Jesus Christ, is tied to the truth of the scriptures. You can't have one. You can't say, I love Jesus, and it's so cool that he came and died, and I believe that, and he's a great guy. But the scriptures, and, and the scriptures being fully authoritative, I'm not buying that. Actually, Jesus says, no, my very person and everything that I'm about is tied to the truth, the complete veracity and determination, the determinative power of the scriptures, okay? So you can't have your cake of salvation and eat it too and start dismissing the scriptures or picking the ones you want. Now, Jesus just doesn't allow you that. He ties his lodestar to the wagon of the scriptures, okay? Or his wagon, (laughs) reverse that, to the lodestar of the scriptures, right? Um, Tim Ward says this in his great book, Words of Life. He says, we cannot be loyal to Christ as the word of God while rejecting his view of scripture as the written word of God. And I have information here on how reliable the Old Testament texts that have been handed down to us are and how they've been preserved, but I can't go there, okay? So uh, I've got plenty of it. We'll do equipping classes soon and we'll have material for all that and books to recommend and notes and all that. So that's a slower process, but there's so much much good stuff on that, okay? Um, Let me just... Let me just throw this point past you. The New Testament, um, as far as, again, its veracity, um, covenantal logic, okay? So there's a salvation event in the Old Testament. The biggest salvation event in the Old Testament was the Exodus, when God brought all of his people, Israel, out of sin and bondage, out of bondage, out of Egypt, out of the Iron Furnace, into a promised land. He delivered them through his power. And out of that came a covenant that God made with his people at Sinai. And that's when he gave them his law and his word and his, all the rest of the scriptures arose out of that word that Moses wrote down and that encounter that God had with his people on Sinai, okay? So, so salvation in the Old Testament is through the Exodus and God's covenant and written word. His, he covenants with his people. I saved you for myself to be in relationship with me. His covenant is written down and that's what the scriptures are. Now, what's the salvation event in the New Testament? that actually fulfills the exodus, of which the exodus was just a faint picture. Jesus, Jesus comes and he, like Moses, but a greater than Moses, leads his people, not just out of physical bondage, but out of the bondage of hell and sin and slavery to the devil and death. He defeats these things on the cross. Out of that salvation event, God's people would expect a new covenant to come. And that's just like had happened in the Old Covenant. That's exactly what we have in the New Testament. So you see how it makes sense. Like it's not just like, okay, Jesus totally validated the Old Old Testament, its veracity, its determinative power. Then the New Testament's like an appendage, not at all. It's the covenant and the recording of the salvation event that the Old Testament points to. So we would expect the gospels. We would expect the letters to the church. And that's exactly what we have. Um, So Jesus in principle, he authenticated the New Testament um, just give you a few examples. The apostles were eyewitnesses. Jesus in verse 27 of John 15 says, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning and I'll give you my spirit. He promises to give them his spirit to write the New Testament. I still have many things to say to you, John 16, 12, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Um, Luke not an apostle. The apostles mainly wrote the New Testament. You have Paul, who was an apostle, as born out of time. He wasn't with Jesus, but the resurrected Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. 
um, and he writes a good portion of the, of the New Testament. And then you have Mark, John Mark, who wrote a gospel, and Luke, not apostles. But Mark's account was based on Peter, with whom he spent a lot of time, an apostle. And Luke says this at the beginning of his gospel. Um, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Um, All right, well, not sure where that went. Um, but, yeah, I think, I think it just got cut off. All that to say, Luke says, look, I wasn't an apostle, but they have seen these things. The Holy Spirit's been given to them. I've spent time with them. As a historian, I've chronicled all these things. I'm putting them together. You could still go ask. At the time that the whole New Testament was written, tons of people that had been alive when Jesus was alive and ministering and died and rose again were still alive. Okay, the people that are mentioned, the things that happened could be verified, okay? Um, so Luke's saying, look, I've set this all down. Go ask people if you don't believe me that are still alive. Um, the Old Testament, let me, let's think about the Old Testament and the New Testament this way. The, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament's the Bible, it's scriptures. It's referred to in the New Testament as the scriptures. It's the Bible, okay? The New Testament, I've heard it said this way, is the answer key. The New Testament's the answer key to the Bible, to the Old Testament. The main difference between the Old and New Testaments is that the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, Christ is veiled. He's prophesied, but he's veiled. He's seen darkly. In the New Testament, he's what? He's revealed. St. Augustine, the church father, said this about it. He said, it was sort of an aphorism. He said, the Old Testament is in the New Testament concealed. He said, excuse me, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Um, So the New Testament is really merely, it's an unpacking of the Old Testament, which is why Jesus continually said, the Old Testament can't be broken. It's true and I'm true. It's the same, you can't say I'm true and the Old Testament's not true. I mean, we're tied, we're tied. Um, The Old Testament is Jesus' shadow. The New Testament is his flesh and bone, okay? Um, So the New Testament writers, quote, consider the Old Testament scriptures to be God-breathed, never to have come by the impulse of man, but from God. Yet in a sense, they put their own authority above them. Though the epistle of the Romans is steeped in Old Testament scripture, says John Wenham, and is in reality an exposition of scripture, Paul tells his audience that, quote, my gospel, Romans 6, 16, 25, is required for its full understanding. So he puts his gospel on parity with the Old Testament, says you actually have to understand what we're saying to get fully what the Old Testament is saying. Okay, Paul in his letters, 1 Corinthians 14, 37, if anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone doesn't recognize these things, then he is not recognized, okay? Um, Peter and John said the same things in their writings about their writings. First Peter 1, 23 and following. First John 1, 1 and following. That's just a couple of references. Um, listen to what Peter says of Paul's writing in one of his letters in Second uh, Peter three sixteen. He says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. That'll make you feel better. Peter's saying that about Paul's letters, okay? Make you feel better if you ever had trouble in Romans or Galatians or any other. He said, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, these letters of Paul, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, listen to this, as they do the other scriptures. What is he doing? He's putting Paul's letters on par with the Old Testament. They knew that they had this trust. They knew that they were writing out this covenant. Jesus had said it would be the case, and it indeed was the case. Guys, there's so much more. Paul puts a passage from Deuteronomy, last thing, and then I'm gonna wrap up. He puts a passage from Deuteronomy and from Luke's gospel in the same category. So Deuteronomy is the last book of the law. It's the fifth book in the Bible. Um, And what Paul does in 1 Timothy 5.18 is he says this. He puts... He mixes a quote from Deuteronomy and from Luke's gospel, which had been written just a few years before. He says, 1 Timothy 5, 18, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That's from Deuteronomy 25, 4. And Paul goes on to say, the labor deserves his wages. The only place we have this recorded is in Luke 10, 7. It's what Jesus said, okay? The labor deserves his wages. So he is, he is putting, he's calling both of them the same word, scriptures, and he's just putting them in a line. He's saying, what Jesus said in, Luke, in what Luke recorded, 
is, is uh, scripture, just like Deuteronomy is scripture, okay? And, and finally, the, the last book of the Bible concludes itself and concludes the canon with um, a, a phrase that comes almost right out of Deuteronomy. It's, it echoes, it has the same authority as that from Deuteronomy. Um, it concludes with this solemn warning, and it puts God's law in Deuteronomy um, and elsewhere in the Torah. It puts itself on par with these things. He says, I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. I mean, there are things in Deuteronomy 4 and elsewhere in Moses' song at the end of Deuteronomy that sound the exact same, okay? Um, I'm gonna skip the bit about, there's, an, there's, a, there's a phrase among New Testament scholars, it's, it's the phrase embarrassment of riches. There's an embarrassment of riches when it comes to textual, the textual science of having the, manus, the oldest manuscripts possible for that. We have like diplomatic texts for the Old Testament that have been handed down to us and, and richly chronicled and secured and edited. Um, in the New Testament, it's a bunch of fragments that we have. Like in, in the phrases, we have an embarrassment of riches. As far as like comparing the integrity um, of the textual witnesses in the New Testament to other comparable ancient uh, scripts from uh, um, manuscripts from Virgil, from Livy, from Horace, from other Latin and Greek authors. There's no comparison. Comparison. We have sometimes you have like six witnesses or twelve or twenty-eight or whatever, and they're like the the the, the most recent one we have is two hundred and fifty or five hundred years removed from the author. In the New Testament, we have starting at like hundred A.D. We have over 100,000, according to um, John Wenham and uh, Kenyon and Metzger and other New Testament scholars, and more every day, textual witnesses. So the problem in the New Testament isn't, we know basically exactly what the original manuscript said, even though we don't have the autographer themselves, but we have so many that the problem is just what to do with them all. So we have all these, and we can tell based on their discrepancies what and it's, this is the science of textual criticism, but we can tell what exactly the, those early witnesses said. So it's, it's an embarrassment of riches. Um, let me finish with a couple scriptures and then a couple stories, okay? I'm sorry this has been long. It's just, I pray that it's helpful to you. Thank you for being patient. Second Peter 1, verse 20 and 21, Peter says this. Second Peter 1, starting in verse 20, he says, I say, this is how the scriptures have come to us. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So what is Peter saying there? Nobody ever just up and decided, I'm gonna write some scripture today. God used their impulses and their gifts, and by his spirit, he um, inspired them to write his very words, okay? So, it was never produced by the will of man, what? But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that word carried along in the Greek is a nautical term, and it's used for the wind uh, carrying sailboats, hitting the sail of a boat, filling it, and carrying a boat along the waters. So what is it saying? The Holy Spirit takes over, and all of a sudden there's mechanical dictation, and he overrides the person's personality? Not at all, not at all. When the wind hits a sail of a sailboat, it becomes what it was made for. That's what Peter's saying, is when the Holy Spirit, Scripture was written not by God's, man's impulse, but God's, and when God filled by his spirit, these human writers, he used, they became who they were meant to be. He used all of their training, all of their faculties, everything. So Amos sounds different than the books of Moses, sound different than the book of the Psalms by David and other authors. Um, so that's how they came to us. Now what they are, and then some stories, a few brief stories, and I'm done. 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. Here's what they are, okay? Verse 15, Paul says to Timothy, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, all scripture, not most, not some, all scripture is what? Breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. That word there, breathed out, is the Greek verb, it's the Greek word, Greek verb, theopneustos. 
It's sometimes translated inspired by God. All scripture is inspired. That's not a good translation, and here's why the ESV translates it breathed out. Theopneustos. Inspired is spiration is breath, and in is into. So it gives the idea that man wrote words, and then God decided at some point to breathe his life into them, to make them living and perfect. That's not the word that Paul gives to Timothy. The word he gives to Timothy is not that they existed first and then God decided to breathe into them. Rather, they are his theo, God, pneustos, breath. The scriptures are God's very breath from the start through human agents, fully man, fully God, and they lead us to the God-man, Jesus Christ. And guys, let me just say, I had a bunch of info on sort of how you can read your Bibles and how it might help, and I wish I had time. I don't. There's no substitute for just spending time in the Word of God in prayer, doing it in community, doing it by yourself in your closet, Um, just reading the Scriptures. We can help with that. We're going to start, as a church, a reading plan together. Um, Read Scripture is the app. We're going we're gonna to follow, and we're going to start in Genesis, and it takes you through the Bible in a year, and it's a help. Just getting through the Bible in large chunks to get the narrative, but also focusing in on maybe a verse or two or a small passage a day to really soak in that and meditate on that. And we'll talk increasingly about how to do that. Um, doing it alone, doing it in community, there's no, there's no replacing it. There's nothing like it. It is our authority for faith and life. We have other authorities, but they always anchor in and go back to, whether church or otherwise philosophical, secular, classroom, non-classroom, at work, wherever you're getting your info, they always go back to the scriptures, which are the very word of God, okay? Um, And they take us to Jesus. Jesus, when he was sparring with the Pharisees in John 5, he said to them, they were arguing with him, and and, and he said to them, look, you, you search the scriptures diligently, thinking that in them you might have life, you might have eternal life. And yet it is they that point to me. And I'm standing right in front of you and you search the scriptures and yet you're totally missing and rejecting and will eventually crucify the one that they point to. The whole reason for the scriptures is to get us to Jesus Christ, into relationship. And there's no way to come into relationship with Jesus really without his word, without his scripture and without his spirit. Which is why, one of the reasons we partner with the seed company. They You know, there are like 1,700 people groups that still have not a shred of scripture, not one verse in their heart language. And there are over a billion people that don't have the Bible, the whole Bible in their heart language. And so the the seed company is about speeding up the work, that work of Bible translation into heart languages so that everyone can have that. There's There's nothing more important than that, and that's one of our partners, and we wanna lean into that more and more. And we could actually, they say as they run the numbers and do the work, we could actually be the first generation in history to help not just close that gap, but zero that number. We could see that happen. Do you, I mean, is there anything more important to be a part of? Like, wow, to give that gift and not to take it for granted ourselves as we press our money and our time and our resources and our prayers into partnerships like that to see with new eyes. If you read the scripture with a Muslim and a Muslim's just boggled at the idea that God would give us a word that would actually, whose point would be he came to us himself to make a way for us to be in relationship with him because he loves us, because he died for us and he rose again and is alive. And he wants to love us and to, and to be loved by us and to know us and to tell us about that. Like, when you read that with a Muslim, you go, wow, what a gift we have. When you work with Seed Company, amazing gift that I just keep on my shelf. Like, what a gift, sola scriptura. Um, I had many stories, but let me just, let me just share one. Um, Karl Barth, one of the greatest, most prolific theologians, um, in the West, certainly, but in the 20th century. Ended up at Princeton in his latter years, I believe, and there was a student, um, apparently, that came across his path and was sort of trying to impress and said, Dr. Bart, could you please, if you just had to distill your learning into maybe one takeaway, what would be the most important thing you've learned? And was probably expecting some highfalutin. And apparently, Karl Bart said this. He just looked at him and he said, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Friends, is there any other way that we know the word of life that gives life, the way of our salvation and the only way of salvation for anybody other than the fact that the Bible tells us that? If we can't rely on that, then we are lost and we can rely on that. It's epistemologically valid and has great veracity and substance to it. It checks out philosophically 
It attests to itself. It proves its own fruit in our lives. It takes us to Jesus, the living word, by faith, through his Holy Spirit. It is such a gift. And that's why out of the five solas, the five planks that we hold to and that are precious to us, we decided to start with sola scriptura. It is the foundation. Without that, we, have, we don't have sola Christus. We don't have sola fide. We don't have sola gratia. We don't have sola deo gloria. Um, let me pray. Father, um, thank you for a patient people that are patient with a long-winded pastor. Thank you for your word that is truly the depths can never, ever, ever be plumbed, Lord. Um, thank you that your word takes us by faith that you give us through your Holy Spirit to the living word, to Jesus. I pray that we would not miss him and that we would treasure your word more than thousands of gold and silver pieces, that we would be a people who worship not the scriptures, but you through your word by the power of your spirit. Would you increase that desire in us? Would you increase that appreciation? Would you increase that for Jesus Christ who came to save us? Um, We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.